A very important attribute of God is his immutability. The immutability of God is basically a theological statement derived from Scripture that God never changes. The God of Adam is the God of Noah, is the God of Abraham, is the God of Moses, is the God of David, is the God of Paul, is the God that we've gathered to worship today. And in the book of Hebrews, this attribute of immutability is ascribed to our Lord Jesus Christ. There in the 8th verse of the 13th chapter, we read this simple and yet wonderful declaration that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. To the delight of critics of our Christian faith and to the consternation of believers, there are difficulties in the Bible. There are some passages that are just plain hard to understand. And there are other passages that at least at first reading seem to be in contradiction of other passages in the same book. Examples of this sort of thing abound. The first one a first-time reader of the Bible is likely to encounter is found in the fourth chapter of Genesis. This is the first chapter of the history of fallen history of man, and in it we read of religious pretense, of jealousy, and murder. It is here that Cain's murder of his brother Abel is recorded. As a result of his crime, Cain was driven away by God, banished from his family, and exiled to a land east of Eden. The Bible then says that in the land of Nod, Cain knew his wife, and she conceived. The problem is that up to this point in the Bible, reference is made to only four human beings, Adam and Eve, and their sons Cain and Abel, and the logical question, the necessary question is where did this wife of Cain come from? For the very casual reader, this is puzzling, if not comical. But for the serious Christian, recognizing that if the Bible isn't believable, then we have no sure word from God at all, it's deeply troubling. Some who come upon this difficulty stop reading at this point and abandon the effort with the conviction that the Bible contains errors that are so obvious that it simply can't be trusted. That's too bad, because the answer to this dilemma is found in the next chapter, and they were discovered early if only they had continued to read. For there we find the genealogy of Adam, and in the context of that genealogy, read that Adam and Eve had other sons and daughters. Sometime after the births of Cain and Abel, they had other children whose names are not recorded in Scripture. This means, as distasteful as it might be to any of us who have sisters, that Cain married his sister. And that's the biblical explanation of where Cain got his wife. And the difficulty is easily set aside. There's another Old Testament difficulty involving the construction of the Ark of the Covenant. There was only one of these. It was the most sacred of the articles associated with the public life and worship of Israel. You may remember early in the book of Joshua reading that priests carried the Ark across the Jordan River that stopped flowing when their feet touched the water. 
and the ark led the people to their first victory at Jericho. Its later capture by the Philistines caused great mourning in Israel, and it would be eventually assigned the most sacred place in the temple beneath the carved angels in the Holy of Holies. The difficulty regarding the ark is found in a comparison of two verses. In Deuteronomy 10, Moses claims that I made an ark of acacia wood. But in Exodus 37, we read that Bezalel made an ark of acacia wood. Now, on the surface, this seems to be one of those contradictions that the Bible is so famous for, at least among its critics. One passage says that one man made the ark and another that the other man made the ark. Some of you may remember that in June of 1944, newspapers across America carried bold headlines that said something like this, Eisenhower lands successfully at Normandy. This was wonderful news for a war-weary nation. It meant that the war, World War II, was in its last phase. But the student of World War II also knows that Eisenhower never fired a shot in anger. While American soldiers were fighting their way ashore in France, the general was sitting behind a desk in Allied headquarters in London. But the headline said, Eisenhower lands at Normandy. This is no contradiction. A fuller statement one that was far too complicated to contain in headlines and actually unnecessary because anybody reading the news already understood this, would be that troops under the command of Eisenhower land at Normandy. We take that back to the Old Testament and we're reminded that Moses was the leader of Israel. He was the mediator through whom God delivered most of his law to his people, and in that law were the instructions regarding the building of this ark. Under Moses' authority, a craftsman was given the task of following the plans dictated by God. And thus, Moses could say, I built the ark. But the history could also say that a craftsman, known for no other reason, built the ark. I've personally heard a New Testament example of this sort of thing cited as a reason for questioning the authority of the scriptures. It involves a bit of the history of Jesus' final trip from Galilee in the north to Jerusalem in the south. As he journeyed, his course took him through the city of Jericho, and there a great miracle took place. Sight was restored to a blind man. But rather than concentrating their attention on the greatness of the miracle and its evidentiary value, liberals of my acquaintance prefer to point out that they insist to focus their attention on what they regard as inconsistencies in the biblical records. This story of this miracle is found in the Gospels of Matthew and Mark and Luke. If we were to open our Bibles to the 20th chapter of Matthew, we would find Jesus described as leaving Jericho, and as he was leaving, two men cried out to him for mercy. They were both blind, and he healed them. We fast forward to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 10, and there we read that Jesus was leaving Jericho when a blind man called out to him, named Bartimaeus, you remember from Sunday school, I'm sure, and Jesus healed him. 
Now, we might ask, was there one blind man or were there two? And then we realize this is a a pointless question. There were probably two. And Mark mentions only one of them, perhaps because he became known in the early church. But the problem comes when we come to the Gospel of Luke. Because while Matthew and Mark both report that this miracle took place as Jesus was leaving Jericho, Luke says that Jesus healed a blind man as he was approaching the city. Now, to the casual reader of the Bible, to the person who is not erecting his religious faith and his morals and values upon what God has said, this is a very little consequence. A casual reader would discover this difference and assign it simply to lapses of memory or errors of recollection that are so common among us as human beings. But that doesn't satisfy the serious Christian. For he believes, first of all, that there's an authority that transcends human understanding and remembering that stands behind the scriptures. And he knows that if the Bible can be shown to be wrong at one point, it can't be trusted at any point. Such difference in detail are not trivial matters to us. They reflect on the very nature of the scriptures and our confidence in the truth that we believe they contain. We return to the Gospels and we think about this particular incident or these particular incidents. We remember that the city of Jericho was a large city, that it was a commercial and financial hub of the area, and that it straddled the main road that led from the east and across the Jordan to Jerusalem, and thus would be the way that many, many Hebrew pilgrims would take on their annual visits to the holy city and its temple. This makes it likely then that the needy, the blind and otherwise, would line that road begging for alms from those passing by on their way to worship God. And it makes it highly likely that all along the way, on the Jordan River side of Jericho to the east, in the city itself, and on its Jerusalem or west side, there would be beggars to be found all along that road. Did Jesus heal a man as he entered Jericho? He certainly did. Did Jesus heal a blind man or two as he was leaving Jericho? He certainly did. This is no contradiction. Some of the Bible's so-called difficulties are more philosophical than these. For example, we find references in the Bible to Jesus that call him the Son of Man and others that call him the Son of God. Critics demand to know of us just what do you Christians believe about Jesus? Is he God or is he man? And our answer is, yes, he is. Yes, Jesus is God. Yes, Jesus was man. This is a great mystery that the finest and the most holy of human minds can only begin to grasp. It's one of many things that we believe as Christians, not because they make perfect sense to us, but because our God has declared them to be true. And the difficulty here is not with the scriptures. The difficulty is with fallen man's inability to understand the scriptures. Another of these philosophical or theological differences has to do with the means of our salvation. There are verses of scripture, and I presume that many of you could quote several of them, at least one of them from the second chapter of Ephesians, 
that tell us that the ground of our salvation is faith in Jesus Christ and faith in Jesus Christ alone. But there are others, and I'm sure that many of you are aware of them as well, that seem to indicate to us that faith alone cannot save us, that faith has to be mixed with works in order to accomplish its purpose in our being saved. And which is it? We'd like to know. To those who are not Christians, to those Christians that are just beginning to grow in their faith, this might not be a very important question. But to those of us who treasure the mercy of God, to those of us who are very confident that we are saved today, this controversy causes us to wonder about tomorrow. It is not for us a matter of theological hair splitting. It's a matter of spiritual life and death. It's a matter of peace or anxiety. In my opinion, the answer is we are saved by faith, and we're saved by faith alone. But the Bible tells us that the faith that is able to save us is the faith that is fairly expected to demonstrate itself in one's life, in his character, in his relationship, in his works. And thus, we don't add works to our faith to be saved. Rather, works are a natural expression of the faith that, in fact, does save us. But more to the point on this Communion Sunday, there are statements in Scripture that seem to declare that we who have placed our faith in Jesus Christ as our Savior are saved right now. But there are others that say that we are in the process of being saved, and still others that indicate that our being saved belongs yet to the future. In our text, we read of our Lord Jesus Christ that he is the same yesterday and today and forever. The Bible says that we were saved yesterday, we who have placed our faith in Jesus Christ. Paul says in our Unison Scripture reading this morning, by faith or by grace, you have been saved. But the Bible also says that we are being saved today. In 1 Corinthians 1, Paul speaks of those who are being saved. And the Bible says that our being saved will be realized in the future. In Romans 5, he says, For if when we were enemies we were reconciled to God through the death of his Son, much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. Which is it, we ask? Are we already saved? Are we in the process of being saved? Or are we waiting to be saved? And as it is with regard to certain other biblical questions, the answer is yes. We were saved yesterday. Many of us have vivid memories of a time in which our hearts and minds seem to open to the things of God the way a flower opens to the sun in the spring. For some of us, those memories are tied to a single moment, perhaps a prayer offered at the end of an evangelistic service or a conversation with a Christian friend or the moment of baptism. And for some of us, there was an evolution of sorts. We remember not a particular moment in our lives, but rather a whole time in which the gospel became sweet to our hearing. Our Reformed understanding of our experience is that we were saved yesterday, but because long before yesterday, our names were already written in the Lamb's Book of Life. 
But however we interpret our experience, the change was real and the change was undeniable. We were born again. We were changed forever from the inside out. We were saved yesterday. And especially on this Communion Sunday, for those of you for whom that yesterday has not yet come, we urge you to read carefully the histories, the life of Jesus Christ to pay particular attention to his teachings and the claims in those teachings that he made for himself, to pray for wisdom that you might understand who Jesus is and what he has the potential of being to you, and then to seek the mercy that he offers and the life that only he can give. We were saved yesterday. But there are other passages that speak of our being saved. And what we have to understand is that salvation has dimensions or phases. Yesterday, we were saved from the penalty of sin. Today, we are being saved from the power of sin. Tomorrow, we will be saved from even the presence of sin. The first and the last of these are completely, unilaterally, the work of God. It was he who chose us to be his own before the foundation of the world. And it was he who gave us the faith that saved us. And it is he who, before we were conceived in our mother's wombs, determined the circumstances of our lives and the number of our days. With the relief of those who are convinced of their unworthiness, we praise him for the former. With the weariness of those who struggle against the darkness of the world, we rejoice in the promise of the latter. At this table... We remember the Lord's death, and we are reminded of his return. But our concentration today and always as Christians needs to be on that broad middle phase of our salvation, the being saved part of it. We had nothing to do with our coming to Christ, and we will have nothing to do with the end of our lives, whether it comes in death or the return of Christ. But our being saved is a cooperative effort that requires our participation. To that end, we are called to give the attention of our minds to the scriptures, not using them as a lens through which we might better see our enemies, but as a mirror in which we might better see ourselves. By this, we are called to bend low in the presence of God every day, offering ourselves to his service, praying that the way we conduct ourselves in that day will honor him and be pleasing and useful to him. In this phase of our growing in righteousness, our being saved, we are called to worship God, to seek his face often in prayer, to live as Christ lived. The chief impediment to our being saved in this sense of growth is the sin that is in our own hearts. We tend not to remember that. When we ask, why did Jesus appoint times like this? When we come together to hold in our hands things that remind us of his, of his torn flesh and his shed blood, And the answer must be to remind us of something that we would otherwise neglect if left to our own devices. David was mindful of his sin. In fact, he said, my sin is ever before me. 
Isaiah was aware of his. He found himself in the presence of God, and he said, Woe is me, I am undone. Peter acknowledged himself to be a sinful man in the presence of Jesus Christ. Paul called himself the chief of sinners. And the Apostle John, the last surviving of all of the apostles and an old man, included himself when he wrote, If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, then God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. To that end, Jesus taught us to pray every day, or at least every day we expect to eat, forgive me my sins. And he leads us to times like this, to moments in the worship of the church in which pointed reminders are set before us and then placed in our hands of things that he did and said on the last night that he lived among us in the flesh. In a hand soon to be torn by a Roman nail, he held a piece of bread. And he said, this is my body, which is broken for you. And passing it among the believers who were present, he said, do this in remembrance of me. Later, he lifted a cup. And when every mouth was stopped and every eye fixed on what he was doing, he said, this is my blood, which is shed for many for the remission of sins. This happened yesterday for our benefit today and our hope tomorrow. Let us pray. Our Father, we pray in the next few moments in this service that by your marvelous grace, every one of us might be totally oblivious to people sitting around us. We pray that our attention, the attention of our minds, and the attention of our heart, the attention of our hearts might be focused upon Jesus who said, come and do this in remembrance of me. Remind us, our God, of the greatness of your love for us. Remind us of the enormity of his sacrifice. Remind us of what we are now only by your grace. Remind us that a place is being prepared for us in everlasting glory. Remind us that you call us to grow in the grace and the knowledge of Jesus that we might be more and more faithful servants. Use this time to touch us deeply and change us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.